In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our weekly selection of choice cuts from across our coverage. I'm Sarah Maslin, foreign correspondent for The Economist, and on the table this week, Richard Dawkins on the only source of absolute truth, the croissant crisis in France, and a tribute to Fats Domino, the real king of rock and roll. But first, social media's threat to democracy was our cover line this week. The globe-spanning networks of social media once promised a more truthful politics. But instead, they seem to have fueled populism, partisanship, and violence, from the United States to Myanmar. Without reform, social media will continue to erode democracy, our cover leader argued. In a liberal democracy, nobody gets exactly what he wants, but everyone broadly has the freedom to lead the life he chooses. However, without decent information, civility and conciliation, Societies resolve their differences by resorting to coercion. And this week, Silicon Valley's biggest social networks testified to having spread poisonous falsehoods. Facebook acknowledged that before and after last year's American election, between January 2015 and August this year, 146 million users may have seen Russian misinformation on its platform. Google's YouTube admitted to 1,108 Russian-linked videos and Twitter to 36,746 accounts. Social media didn't create a divided society, but are amplifying divisions in a uniquely powerful way. They make their money by putting photos, personal posts, news stories and ads in front of you. Because they can measure how you react, they know just how to get under your skin. They collect data about you in order to have algorithms to determine what will catch your eye in an attention economy that keeps users scrolling, clicking and sharing. The result is compelling. One study found that users in rich countries touch their phones 2,600 times a day. Such influence could be a powerful tool for education, but the social media algorithms keep users trapped in dangerous filter bubbles. Because different sides see different facts, they share no empirical basis for reaching a compromise. Because each side hears time and again that the other lot are good for nothing but lying, bad faith and slander, the system has even less room for empathy. Because people are sucked into a maelstrom of pettiness, scandal and outrage, they lose sight of what matters for the society they share. So what is to be done? To find out, pick up a copy of the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. Now, last month, astronomers looked up from their phones for long enough to spot an unexpected guest to the solar system arriving at speed, turning sharply round the sun and then zooming away. Our correspondent, Anno Bhattacharya, spoke to Jason Palmer on Babbage, our weekly science and technology podcast, to explain what makes this mysterious rock so unique. It's the first time that we've spotted anything in our solar system that originated from outside it, probably from another solar system. Sounds cool. What, what, can, what can we learn from it, though? There are a few puzzles about all of this. Essentially, these things are left over from when the planets formed. Uh, it's the sort of spare rock that's left over, and occasionally they get nudged out of their orbits around their particular star, and then they, you know, cruise through space. And uh, according to the models of of how solar systems form, we should be seeing about one a year. So why we haven't seen any up until now, when we've probably been looking for a few decades, uh, is a bit of a mystery. Babbage is available every Wednesday from Apple Podcasts or your app of choice.
The unexpected arrival of our first interstellar visitor may have scientists temporarily stumped. But the latest guest on our weekly chat show, The Economist Asks, has great faith that science is still the best method to solve the world's mysteries. Anne McElvoy asked the evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins whether there's any wiggle room beyond the scientific method. There may be questions that science can never answer. But what I would add to that, and it's an important addition, is that if science can't answer them, nothing can. Well, that sounds like a bit of a council of despair. It's a bit like, you know, if you can't get what you want from my department, I'm sorry, no one well, else can help exactly. you. It, it, it's rather recognising with a kind of reverence that there may be some really deep questions, some really deep questions which even science can't answer. And that's why people say, oh, that'd be quite useful because God might slot in there or fail. Well, that, that of course, really is a cop-out because that, that, that's now saying, oh, theory A doesn't work, therefore theory B by default must, be, must, must work, even though there's not the slightest evidence for theory B. But it might simply be that it is that theory is allowing a space beyond science. It doesn't necessarily have to prove that uh, God has an old white man with a beard or some other form a of space being. Be, a space beyond science is certainly po- possible, but to fill that space with not just a white man with a beard, which is a ridiculous cliche, of course, but, but any kind of supernatural, intelligent, creative being is unnecessary and superfluous. And you can hear more of that debate by subscribing to The Economist Asks, published every Thursday. Some may see no need for the spiritual, but for most of human history, belief in something has been fundamental. An article in our Books and Arts section marveled at the latest attempt to explain this human need. Through an exhibition at the British Museum, a parallel BBC radio series presented by Neil McGregor, and an upcoming book collectively entitled Living with the Gods. There is something fascinating and a bit frightening about spiritual systems and codes which have commanded passionate loyalty among millions of people for millennia, but which are still impenetrable to outsiders. Living with the Gods uses the objects made by devotees to let us outsiders in. The oldest item is a mammoth tusk sculpture called the Lion Man, dating back to the Ice Age. Even among hunter-gatherers who were struggling to survive, it was worthwhile for someone to spend up to 400 hours fashioning an object that served nothing but a talismanic purpose, connecting people to invisible worlds. The newest object is a cross made by an Italian carpenter from bits of a ship that was carrying refugees when it foundered in the Mediterranean near Lampedusa. The universe is vast and frightening, and humans have always sought ways to find meaning in it. Some of the objects that are highlighted have been considered sacred in themselves, such as a copy of the Kazan icon of the Mother of God. This depiction of Mary, deemed to have played a role in protecting Moscow from foreign invaders, is credited with such holiness that it can extend to reproductions. People have gone to extraordinary lengths to spread sanctity around the world. The radio series ponders giant silver vessels in which a Victorian-era Maharaja brought water from the Ganges to London, and the exhibition includes a more modest receptacle in which pilgrims to Mecca gathered water from a sacred spring and brought it to their families. Now, in resolutely secular France, some things are still sacred. As the saying goes, liberté, égalité, patisserie. But, as Adam Roberts, our European business and finance correspondent, told our Money Talks podcast this week, that holy of holies, the croissant, may be under threat as the country finds itself in the grip of a butter crisis. 
the French wouldn't dream of touching margarine. That, that's just a step too far. But the French are getting quite excited about it. If you go onto Twitter, you can see Burgate as a, a trending theme. Uh, in the supermarkets, people like to take photos of the empty shelves. And in the bakeries, there's talk of a catastrophe. My local baker the other day told me that, Monsieur, it's a terrible catastrophe. The butter prices are soaring. We've never seen anything like it. So it would be an exaggeration to say there's a panic in France about the lack of butter, but it's something that gets very close to the heart of French culture, French cuisine, the love of croissant, the love of all sorts of delicacies at Christmas. Butter is an absolutely central ingredient to much of French life. And finally... Our obituary this week paid tribute to a man who knew the beauty of food and of music, often together. Antoine Fats Domino, a pioneer of rock and roll. The fact that Fats Domino in 1957 played 355 shows in America, traveling 13,000 miles, was misleading. He never left New Orleans, or rather, New Orleans never left him. The fact that he was praised by Elvis Presley as the real king of rock and roll, named as chief inspiration by Paul McCartney, Led Zeppelin, John Lennon and Neil Young, and hailed as the man who started a cultural revolution deemed so dangerous in parts of America that bottles flew and fights started, was pretty mystifying to him. He was New Orleans through and through. Beginning with his girth and the rolling languid gait it gave him. Both showed such a love of red beans, gumbo and jambalaya that he couldn't find food worth eating anywhere else, but took his own pots, pans and hot sauce to cook them up wherever he was. One of his stunts was to play standing and, with his belly, gradually push his piano into the wings. Impressive. His first big hit, cut in 1949 after Dave Bartholomew, a talent scout, had discovered him, was The Fat Man. But fat men had fun. And the fun he had flowed straight through into his tunes. Once he started those big fingers diving flat and fast to the keys and that right leg stamping to the beat, once he beamed that thousand-watt smile to the audience on every phrase, no one could stay still. What he thought he was playing was rhythm and blues, though there was not much blue about it. Only he, on Ain't That a Shame, could make My Tears Fell Like Rain sound like the best thing that had happened all week. That's the end of this week's episode of Tasting Menu. Ain't that a shame? Don't forget, you can read all the articles mentioned in this week's issue and find all our other podcasts online. Keep sending in your feedback by email to radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.